Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice-weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in, wherever you are in the UK and indeed the rest of the world. And even more than ever, we've got a lot to cram in in our time together. If it's okay uh, with all of you, I'll be reflecting on the latest twists and turns, of course they're Brexit twists and turns, with the Irish Protocol. Uh, a look also at uh, the dance, the latest movement in the dance between Keir Starmer and Jeremy Corbyn and contextualise it a bit, and a bit more on Scotland. Um, I uh, offered a few reflections uh, at the beginning of the podcast at the end of last week, uh, which included the interview with uh, Lord Butler, Robin Butler, the Cabinet Secretary under uh, Thatcher, Major and Blair. There's more to come, isn't there, on on all three? Oh, consequences erupting around us all over the place. Uh, and I'm going to do it also via uh, some of the emails you've sent in. As ever, brilliant emails, but I've had some great ones and very um, thoughtful ones on all those themes. So uh, instead of me kind of going on for a bit and then over to you, there's going to be uh, you and I in dialogue together a bit uh, in this one. And before all of that, just a couple of notices. Uh, the live shows are kicking off uh, next month. Birmingham, March the 21st at the Thousand Trades Club, King's Place, the first of the year there, on March the 23rd. Belfast, March the 26th at the Black Box in Hill Street. Rope Tackle Shoreham on March the 29th. Uh, Witham in Barnard Castle, April the 1st. And the Old Market Theatre, Brighton on April the 24th. So there's a kind of mini tour which came from nowhere. And you can get tickets on their websites uh, or via the blurb for this podcast where there will be the links. And please, uh, if you can, subscribe to Patreon where uh, there are all kinds of bonus podcasts, uh, the latest one being uh, in a series on troublemakers, political troublemakers. Quite appropriate as we're going to be reflecting a bit about Brexit. And uh, yeah, uh, Patreon, the latest troublemaker is Enoch Powell. And of course, Blimey, we're coming to the end of February. The year is speeding past us, which is both alarming, but it's quite exciting. Don't you feel with spring, hints of spring in the air, maybe? Now, the protocol. First of all, uh, I think Rishi Sunak deserves credit for grasping this without any machismo, without any, oh, you watch it, we'll break the law if needs be, blah, 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 you know, unilateral and all the rest of it. Done the hard grind of painstaking negotiation, uh, something that Boris Johnson uh, was uh, useless at and indifferent to, seems to be on the edge of something. And by the time you hear this, it might have all been agreed or it might not have been. You never know with these Brexit-related complex negotiations what how close it is and when an agreement will be signed. But as ever, with Europe and Brexit, uh, that's the easy bit. The difficult bit is the uh, politics at Westminster. Now, I'm not going to spend much time on one element of it because it is a running theme the insurrectionary nature of the Tory parliamentary party. And there's an earlier podcast done a few weeks ago where I looked at the degree to which someone like Sunak is trapped by this transformed parliamentary party. But I do want to say for just 10 seconds or so, what chutzpah of Johnson and his followers uh, to try and make hay out of all of this when it is a direct consequence that word again, of uh, Johnson's speedy, rushed deal, uh, which put a border between uh, Great Britain and Northern Ireland. He knew the implications then. He's not wholly stupid. And the implications were, if you put a border somewhere, there will be transactions. And if the gateway to the single market becomes a part of the UK, as Johnson agreed, Northern Ireland, being the gateway to uh, the rest of Ireland in the EU, there will have to be some way of policing the movement of goods. 
Now, it looks as if there is a compromise and a sensible one about goods uh, heading from Great Britain just to Northern Ireland uh, with very light or no checks at all, and then uh, more checks for the goods going in uh, with the intention of hitting the single market. Uh, But the European Union uses the uh, European Court of Justice, the ECJ, uh, as its sort of legitimizing body institution. And it's unlikely to shift wholly from that. And that sparks all these alarms amongst, well, it's pretend with Johnson because it was him who brought about the deal in the first place, but some of the others. Now, in my view, and we'll come on to this with Keir Starmer and Jeremy Corbyn, I am always wary of uh, columnists, journalists and others saying, oh, you know, a leader should take on a section of his party because uh, it's very easy for columnists to say it and it reflects a deeply subjective view of politics and the dynamics within a party. But I have to say, I'm going to say it, I think Sunak, if uh, he gets some kind of deal uh, where Uh, that leads to improvements on the mess that Johnson left behind, he should stick with it. And if Johnson challenges, uh, he should take Johnson on uh, in his polite way. Because in the end, people will see through someone who reneged on Theresa May's deal, not reneged, kind of, he voted against it, he voted for it in the end, actually and negotiated a worse deal, the consequences of which his successors are having to try and sort out. And old Frosty's there saying, oh, you know, bring back the uh, protocol bill where which gives them the mechanism to unilaterally withdraw from the protocol, even if that means breaking international law. Um, because in a wholly misguided way, Frosty and Johnson and others, by the way, focusing on the safe area of process, They always do this. They focus on the process, not the substance. They've got no solutions as to how precisely you improve uh, this mad arrangement uh, and dangerous arrangement. But they instead say, well, hold on a second. We will get a better deal. They don't say what it will be. Uh, If they know the EU, we can uh, withdraw uh, unilaterally from the whole thing. It, it, a, it's, it's just daft on so many levels. Above all, though, it's lazy. They do not come up with detailed, workable propositions themselves. They go on about process. It's always been the case with Europe that they go back to this. So old Frosty's there say, oh, we'll get a much better deal if they do. Like when he wore his Union Jack socks when he went in to negotiate with the more sophisticated EU negotiators, he thought that will succumb when they see those socks, you know, when I'm being tough and threaten no deal, even though Johnson in the end would not accept no deal. You know, the chutzpah doesn't even get near it. But I think the key uh, for Sunak really is the DUP. He's got to see through the madness of um, his own party at some point. And, And in a way, although it could be volcanic, because Europe always is in the internal politics of the two bigger parties, actually, both. It has to be done because he wants to, Biden to come over. He wants to form decent ties with the United States. While this is hanging in the air, it won't happen. If it's not resolved, one of well, the defining pledge of that 2019 election, get Brexit done, will be seen to be the lie it was. So, but anyway, he's, he's partly trapped by his party. But the DUP is the thing. Uh, because if the DUP refuse to sign up, A, that gives material to all these uh, 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 fantasists on the Tory parliamentary party who thinks without specifying what it is that there's a better way through all of this. Um, uh, but it also means that if they don't sign up, that they will not agree to take part in a revived Northern Ireland Assembly. And one of the objectives of this is to get the Assembly up and running, because in that vacuum, there are other dangers, obviously. One of the many consequences of Brexit is that the Good Friday Agreement is in danger, and it still is, and it will be in less danger if the Assembly is up and running. So the DUP is key. Now, this is where I'm going to return uh, now, not return, turn for the first time to uh, some of your emails, because I got two on the uh, state of the DUP. 
So the first one is from the Reverend Canon Paul Arbuthnot, who regular listeners will know is in, uh, lives in Dublin, but follows the politics of Northern Ireland incredibly closely. And this is what he says about this, what I think is the crucial area, the DUP, uh, the history, that not the histrionics, the calculations, the crude self-interested calculations of Boris Johnson, the delusions of his followers, the chutzpah and delusions of that mediocrity frost. They're, they're different, but the DUP is, a, is an issue. And, and, and by the way, of course, they don't represent uh, the Northern Ireland electorate, who the majority of whom voted Remain. They voted for Brexit without thinking through the consequences. But anyway, Paul is very interesting. Here he is. He says, I hope you and all the listeners are keeping well. Thank you very much, Paul. I think we're all, we're all coping with the dramas in our different ways. The protocol, nego- this is Paul. the protocol negotiations are entering their end game and we'll probably know the finer detail of any deal by the middle of the week. If you don't mind, I'd like to throw in my two cents worth about it. We know that the DUP has issued seven tests which any protocol deal must pass in order to be acceptable to them. The chances are that all those seven tests will not be met. We all know that any negotiation, uh, in, in any negotiation, nobody wanders off into the sunset with 100% of what they want. I'm quite sure that Sir Geoffrey Donaldson knows this. The commentariat who think that the DUP will reject any deal are woefully wrong, in my opinion. The current leadership of the DUP is actually more pragmatic than anybody ever gives them credit for. Throughout his career, Donaldson has shown pragmatism. For example, as Member of Parliament, his voting record as a DUP MP during the Theresa May era shows this. None of this might not be the sort of pragmatism that the listenership of this fine podcast like, but it's pragmatism nonetheless. The protocol deal will land in the area of the DUP's seven tests, even if they don't exactly fulfil them. Therefore, this will be seen as a victory by the DUP and will be sold as such. To be fair to them, they can rightly say that their hardball moved the protocol needle in their favour. So there we are. There's an analysis from Paul, the Reverend Canon Paul Abathnot, which argues that the DUP will be pragmatic in the end. Now, by the time you hear this, Paul might have been proved right or wrong. But anyway, at this point, it is an interesting assessment, which gives a glimmer of hope uh, for Sunak that he can reach some kind of agreement with them. But now we go over to our French correspondent, Dominica Joule. French as in in France. Dominica, as she reveals, knows quite a lot about Northern Ireland, as a native, indeed, of Northern Ireland. Uh, We learn more about Dominica on a regular basis uh, through her emails. Anyway, based in France. Uh, This is her view. The DUP had 21.3% of the vote in the last election, which in the context of the current EU-UK negotiations and along with the ERG, the European Reform Group, relegates them to the status of a marginal interest group. 55.8% of the population of Northern Ireland voted to remain in the EU and suggestions that existing arrangements aren't working are greatly exaggerated. Ask any Northern Ireland business which has enjoyed unfettered access to the EU single market. Moreover, contrary to reports in various UK media outlets, the Red and Green Lanes proposal was put forward on the 13th of October 2021 by the EU and is therefore not the brainwave of the current United Kingdom government. As a native of Northern Ireland, who has observed the modus operandi of the DUP and its ilk over many years, I can confirm that their consistent strategy is to disrupt, prevaricate, and then declare never, never, never. Well, uh, Dominica and Paul can't both be right. Uh, So, you know, one of the many things we will have to look out for as these uh, dramas unfold, um, is uh, who made a more accurate assessment of the DUP. But I thought it was very interesting, uh, two people who follow it very closely with very different views of the current situation. But what, again, uh, 
a huge amount of political energy on trying to make Brexit work. And I go again uh, just one more time, I think, <laughs> for a bit to repeat uh, what the then German ambassador said to me when I had breakfast with him uh, around about the time of the Brexit referendum. Uh, his view, and it was genuine, that the UK was least suited to leave uh, the EU because of this whole question of Ireland and where you put the border. And the question remains unresolved. He thought then, and I still think now, that there, there is no answer which makes it work smoothly. And there will be many uh, dangerous consequences, be, and some of which are being played through as we've discussed now, will the DUP cooperate in a uh, revival of the assembly, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, it's, it's too easy to do, but list the downsides of that Brexit deal. And any upsides, anyone? You know, it's just, you know, Frosty says, oh, we've got our freedom back. What does he mean by that? Anyway, uh, thank you for those two very interesting and different views, and we need to keep on watching. Now, another interesting development. It's all been happening, hasn't it? It always does when the House of Commons is in recess, as I think I mentioned uh, last week. Keir Starmer announced that uh, uh, as part of, and, and, and incidentally, it's something which is a great tribute to his absolute disciplined focus, uh, uh, Keir Starmer announced that the HR, EHRC had uh, given um, a clean bill of health to Labour vis-a-vis anti-Semitism. And Starmer, rightly, he had no choice but to do it, made this uh, one of his focuses from day one of the leadership. Uh, it, he had to do it on moral grounds and also on electoral grounds that you, know, you can't carry on with these kind of things whirling around you. And he then also said, in answer to questions, uh, that Jeremy Corbyn would not be a candidate, uh, a Labour candidate at the next uh, general election. Now, I spoke about this on this podcast when uh, Corbyn uh, was first uh, suspended by Keir Starmer, when the initial EHRC report came out. And first of all, Keir Starmer made a statement, then Corbyn made a statement, and the Corbyn statement was not wholly in line with Starmer's one, and he was suspended. And I argued then that um, that was both a strategic mistake and an overreaction. And I argued then that uh, what that did was put Corbyn right back at the centre of the political stage, when in fact the December 2019 election had um, put him at the margins. Uh, he graciously resigned, uh, unlike some Tories that we can think of who try and cling on in the most desperate of circumstances. He and John McDonnell left with that traumatic verdict hanging over them. And for the months that followed, Corbyn kept a low profile. I, I checked the cuttings up until the point when he was given this stage again. And there was virtually no reference to him in the newspapers and so on. He didn't seek it either. Uh, he was content being what he always was, really, a assiduous local MP and a campaigner uh, based on the sort of Tony Benn model of speaking at rallies and so on. This gave him a platform. It was always going to be impossible uh, because of the symbolism of that particular move, to allow him uh, back in again, certainly to the parliamentary party, uh, because it would trigger headlines, weak Starmer lets in Jeremy Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn still, you know, dominant in Labour, he's been allowed back in, Starmer, reneges, and all the other things. So this uh, announcement the other day was inevitable. But I will just make um, uh, a few obs ob observations. Then I'm going to read a very different view from Helen Gordon, Helen the Baker, uh, in our cooperative, uh, Helen Bakes Bread. But, uh, and to, to show we can have a kind of civilized discussion even about these highly emotive things. See, mine is based on context, our other favorite word in uh, the podcast. A year ago this week, 
to contextualize uh, was the Bermondsey by-election. What am I talking about? A year ago, 40 years ago. <laughs> Doesn't time fly? 40 years ago this week uh, was the Bermondsey by-election, uh, 1982. Michael Foote was leader of the Labour Party in deep trouble. And Bermondsey had selected as their candidate, the Labour Party, Peter Tatchell, uh, who everyone knows now was less known then. Anyway, all hell broke loose uh, because it was reported that Peter Tatchell had advocated, in inverted commas, extra parliamentary action. And on that basis, Michael Foote announced dramatically in the House of Commons uh, that uh, he would not accept Peter Tatchell as Labour candidate in Bermondsey. And uh, when he did so, all the papers who had made Michael Foote's life hellish praised him and said, at last, Michael Foote is showing he can take on, you know, the revolutionary wing of his party. Uh, good on Michael, strong leadership, brave leadership and so on. And uh, Michael Foote wrote a brilliant essay. It was an essay published in The Observer in January uh, 1983. Uh, explaining why he was opposed to Tatchell and extra parliamentary action and so on. But it didn't quite add up. And by the way, even though he was praised, Michael Foote, for doing this, uh, made no difference to his poll rating, which was bad. And Labour's poll rating was bad. But he wrote this wonderful essay. I strongly recommend you read it. So God could Michael Foote write. But it didn't really cohere. I mean, Michael Foote was a great advocate of extra-parliamentary action. He had been prominent on the CND demos and indeed carried on taking part in CND demos when he was leader of the Labour Party. And in a way, that's kind of what Tatchell meant by extra. It, it didn't mean he was anti-elected politics. And in the end, Foote, this isn't going to happen with Keir Starmer, but Foote succumbed and Peter Tatchell became the candidate. Um, but in the, and I, I remember we were, we were all students, post-grad journalism course, in the seat where this by-election happened, cinematic by-election, cold days, weird underlying anti-gay stuff going on in this by-election. And Michael Foote came to speak for Peter Tatchell at the place where we were doing our journalism course. We all went down. It was an exciting meeting. It was feverishly exciting, actually. The meeting of the leader with the candidate who he had wanted to expel, but in the end gave it. But the whole thing, the, the, the signal that uh, Michael Foote wanted him out uh, was enough to doom Tatchell. You, you know, voters don't follow politics but they and Labour. Labour were slaughtered in the by-election. It was won by the Lib Liberals and Simon Hughes, Lib Dems as they were. were they, no, they were the Liberals then. It didn't work for Michael Foote. It didn't work for Labour. And there was, you know, taking on gets this huge praise for leaders when they do it, Labour leaders. If, if Sunak takes on Boris Johnson, that would be genuinely brave because a lot of papers are with Johnson. And similarly with Neil Kinnock, I mentioned this before, uh, when Neil, so he was very different. Uh, he had no choice but to take on uh, militant. These were people from outside Labour infiltrating Labour. And he did with huge energy and, of course, the famous theatrical uh, taking on at the Labour Party conference uh, in that speech, which is still one of the great theatrical speeches. But he, I've had a lot of conversations with Neil Kinnock about this. And he tells me that um, when they had these big victories against the whatever you want to call them, hard left. What a ridiculous adjective. I've never known such a, uh, a weak group than the so-called hard left. Look how they gave up power, just handed it over uh, after um, doing well in the 2017 election. It's all, you know, here you are, you can have it, we're no good. Um, but anyway, they're called the hard left. And, and Neil tells me that his team, when they won a motion at conference, you know, showing them after some row and things. And, you know, and like some Kears people, very macho, oh, we slaughtered them, we slaughtered them. And Neil would say, all right, enjoy this drink. But I tell you, the voters out there would just see we're divided, kind of weird, disturbed party. He was right. 
they were wrong. And uh, funny enough, after that epic speech, you know, attacking Derek Hatton, you know, who was in the hall and um, uh, the, the militant tendency, I covered the next by-election, which was I was working for Radio Newcastle in the northeast of England. And the next by-election was Time Bridge, a few weeks after that speech, which again, all the commentariat, brave Neil Kinnock, at last Neil Kinnock showing leadership, until at the end, they, all the papers say, uh, you know, he's done... He's he's done a few good things, but the party's still too not ready for power and all the rest of it. And it had made no difference. Labour didn't do particularly well in that time bridge by-election. So just on those kind of strategic grounds, and in the case of um, Keir Starmer, to me, he's so obviously a change from the past. Now, people tell me from his office and candidates and focus groups and the rest of it that, uh, oh, it still comes up a lot on the doorstep that Jeremy Corbyn and Labour and all the rest of it. But Jeremy Corbyn is one of the few people have heard of in politics. They won't know most of the shadow cabinet. Jeremy Corbyn is better known than Keir Starmer, and he was becoming less known, but he's as well known again now. The context suggests to me something different to what common orthodoxy suggests on all of this. Tony Blair never did it uh, in opposition. I never heard Alistair Campbell slagging people off. Tony Blair did it once in government when he prevented Ken Livingstone from standing as London mayor as a Labour candidate. And it was one of the times he had to do one of his famous apologies. Livingstone won as an independent, uh, was much more successful than Labour's chosen one. Frank Dobson probably would have been. Tony Blair at a Labour Party conference said, look, you know, sometimes we have to apologise, right? So... I'm sorry, we got it wrong about Ken Livingston. And that was the only time he took on an individual. Now, I know that uh, he's told Kirstama he's got to show that it's all over for the hard left or else the Tories will say the hard left will run things in government and all the rest of it. But he didn't do it. He did obviously clause four and some uh, policies which clearly challenged it. But that's that's fine. But taking on individuals is a highly charged uh, emotive uh, thing to do. And also, leaders need to cohere. Say voters don't follow politics, but they, they, they see an outline. And when Neil Kinnock became leader in 83, uh, uh, he had already famously in the deputy leadership contest in 1981, he didn't back Tony Benn. Big, big moment for Neil Kinnock. Um, it, he didn't back Healy either. He backed a third candidate who came into it, partly to block Ben, uh, John Silkin. And so when he became leader in 83, he had already established himself as someone uh, who was trying to move Labour in a different direction. And so it sort of all cohered. When Blair came in in 1994, he had been absolutely at the heart of various internal reforms of the uh, Labour Party, including one member, one vote for the leadership. So when he came in and introduced further Reforms, it all kind of cohered uh, with Keir Starmer. He uh, uh, fully understandably and rightly made the decision to stay in the shadow cabinet under Jeremy Corbyn. But he then fought a leadership election uh, with those uh, famous pledges, uh, which were all sort of uh, Corbynista kind of style pledges, which I'm sure he probably regrets. Um, I think he would have won anyway. But that's a bit like, you know, Nick Clegg saying, I regret the pledge to introduce, uh, uh, to scrap tuition fees before the 2010 election rather than regretting the pledge to triple them when he came in, not pledge, the implementation of it. And so it doesn't quite cohere in the same way, the arc, the outline that people will see. I personally think there was a way of dealing with this uh, in which from the very beginning, uh, Jeremy Corbyn remained a backbench Labour MP as he was in the whole new Labour era. And uh, I think that would have been a more sensible approach. But now over to Helen Gordon, the baker. Uh, hope all well. I've been reflecting on your comments on Keir Starmer's decision to confirm uh, Jeremy Corbyn's permanent exclusion. You see, Helen, it's very interesting, this. I haven't made any comments. It's the first time that I've made any. But I think you kind of dreamt them or something. Anyway, uh, allow me to offer some counter-analysis. 
to your assertions that uh, Keir Starmer made a mistake. I say, I think the, the original call to suspend him, that I think was a mistake. First, you say, uh, you've said several times, Keir Starmer's decision to withdraw the whip was a strategic error. Yeah, that, I do think that. That it would then lay Keir Starmer open to accusations that he had endorsed uh, Jeremy Corbyn to be a prime minister. But uh, Helen disagrees. Firstly, under the Corbyn re- toxic Corbyn regime, this is Helen, there were no good choices for those who differed politically from Corbyn, and especially those who stood against anti-Semitism. Those who left, those who stayed, those who stood aside from the front bench, those who stayed on the front bench to counter this, all ended up marked to a greater or lesser extent. Um, And then she argues that those who left uh, ended up in a problematic position, uh, and so did those who stay. See, on this, Helen, I agree. I I think Kisama uh, was right to stay in the shadow cabinet. Um, and to, um, uh, in some ways, help keep the show on the road. Although the Brexit thing so complicates things, uh, because in a way the irony is, and this is—I don't know if any of you heard an interview with Diane Abbott. She was quite and quite uncharacteristic for her because she's going to be a clumsy interviewee, uh, and she can make mistakes. But she was quite clever in this interview. This was after the Keir Starmer announcement, where she says the big difference between them was over. Uh, Brexit, because Corbyn was basically pro-Brexit. Now, that, of course, is Labour's position now, make Brexit work. Um, So what she was trying to do in a cheeky way was to remind people that it was Keir Starmer who was the Remainer. uh, And Corbyn, although officially a Remainer, closer to where we've ended up. But anyway, Starmer helped to keep the show on the road. I think no one can condemn people for being in the uh, shadow cabinet and trying to make something work. Um, when you're an MP and the party is in a sort of state of turmoil. So I don't blame with that. But then how you make the picture cohere with a leadership pitch to the left. See, the Lib Dems in the general election of 2010 pitched to the left of New Labour and then joined Cameron and Osborne uh, in a coalition, quite a lot of which was an experiment on the radical right, including the economic policies. And that arc became impossible for Nick Clegg. Now, Keir Starmer is 20 points ahead in the polls, and maybe this arc is absolutely fine, but it's a more awkward one where you've pitched in one direction and then move somewhere uh, very vividly in, in another. So I don't think you and I differ on that. Helen says, I would contend that most sensible voters recognise the dilemma people were in. Yep, absolutely. I completely agree with that. Then Helen says, I think it's wrong to assume that Corbyn's expulsion signals the end of Labour's broad church. Of course, one reading of the situation is Starmer stamping on the hard left, so disaffecting the soft left and other leftists uh, in order to enforce discipline. But another possibility is simply that the stench of anti-Semitism around Corbyn is so great that there is no choice for Starmer and that there are other fellow travellers too. This is where the symbolism, I think, comes into it a bit. Um, If it is uh, addressing one particular issue, there are always causes, and other people have been expelled from parties over causes. Look, at Johnson suspended the whip for a load of people over Brexit. But there tends to be a symbolism that widens that into right. And by the way, I think um, on the specific issue of whether party members alone should select candidates, I'm absolutely with Keir Starmer and his team that they have the right to have a say over this. I mean, this, these are people who are being elected to parliament uh, on the assumption that quite a lot of them should be in the government if Labour wins and therefore capable of being ministers and putting a case and all the rest of it. These parties are broad churches, uh, unavoidably so in our electoral system. And I think, therefore, the art of leadership is partly uh, managing the broad church to the benefit of the party electorally and to the country. Because sometimes, you know, in this broad church, uh, those on the so-called left have um, uh, proven to be, uh, well, all this is subjective, but proven to be right about some policy areas in the same way as uh, leaders of the Tory party have benefited at times from there being a broad church of One Nation Tories now in such a besieged state that even Damien Green has been deselected, as well as the sort of English nationalist hard Brexiteer wing. You've got to manage. Partly it's about management, but there is so much pressure 
on um, leaders, especially labor leaders, to define themselves as tough and bold by taking on, in inverted commas, a section of the uh, their party that media orthodoxy views with disdain at best. And actually, I don't think it, it can work like that if there is going to be a broad church. Anyway, uh, these are all sorts of this uh, actually for for such a kind of highly charged debate where you know some on the Blairite wing hate the left and the left hate the Blairite wing. I think it's more nuanced. It's about how you manage these big, broad churches. Anyway, Helen the Baker ends by saying, keep up the great work, love the double weekly pods and special Patreon subscriber editions. Thank you. Yeah, she suggests I interview some of those who left during the Corbyn years. Well, I, I know a lot of them and will do, Helen. But I tell you, Change UK was a kind of, I think we'd all agree, was an absolutely false uh, sense of direction. Anyway, uh, thank you very much for that. So there we are. So uh, where are we? Yeah. What, what time is it? Oh, yeah. Time is moving on. And we've done, uh, we're, we're kind of, I hope you're doing this over a relaxed cup of coffee or a, a whiskey because we're, you know, it's a very light issue this week. The Northern Ireland Protocol and um, managing the Labour Party. But let's now move uh, briefly because I did mention it last week. I thought I'd get more letters. Letters? What age am I in? Uh, More emails about um, uh, Scotland. Here are a few in the light of uh, uh, Nicola Sturgeon's departure. David Fisher. Uh, loving the podcast. Oh, thank you, David. I don't usually have anything interesting to report with regard to activities undertaken while listening to the show. But listen to this. I recently invested in some open ear headphones, which means I can safely listen to podcasts while I'm out on bike rides. So I've been merely making my way around the Cheshire countryside on my bike whilst listening. Well, I'm really interested in that because now I'm going I'm to admit something now. I kind of listen to things, mainly podcasts, actually, uh, while cycling. But I haven't got open-ear headphones. Do, do you mean, well, I don't quite know what you mean. Anyway, he goes on to say, he must have got on his bike, off his bike, uh, to write the email. I had in mind a question I wanted to ask you about Scottish independence this week. A friend and I have an ongoing disagreement about Scotland becoming independent. According to him, Scotland need not be too concerned about the financial implications of becoming independent as they'll rejoin the EU. Blimey. Uh, David goes on to say, to me, this seems a huge assumption. Firstly, because I don't think the EU are going to prop up a small economy if it isn't convinced it's stable and self-sufficient. And secondly, because I can't imagine the EU relishing the idea of another land border with the UK and the difficulties we have uh, seen with Northern Ireland. I think you're more onto something, actually, than your friend. I don't think... uh, uh, the essence of a independent Scotland's pitch to the EU will be, could we join so you can prop up our ailing economy? Look at what the EU did with Greece. I'm not hasten to add comparing Scotland to Greece. But they won't want to join on that assumption. But here, David, we're getting to some of the nitty gritty. And I think some of the things, I don't know, probably Nicola Sturgeon uh, kind of was also wrestling with, as well as the route towards an independence referendum, which appears to be blocked at the moment, uh, which is exactly this. If you join the uh, the European Union, does Scotland uh, take up the single currency? It's in the single market, so there has to be a border with the uh, this silly little England, which is not in the single market and apparently is not going to get close to it. How does it all work? And as some of those who are opposed to independence and who who have believed in the past that another referendum might be possible, might be needed, they rightly say the absolute nitty gritty of this kind of detail needs to be uh, in place before the referendum. There should be no more fantasy referendums like the Brexit one in 2016, though I know many of you will have answers to that because we have a lot of people uh, listening in Scotland who are pro-independence. I think one of them might be uh, Stephen Townsley who writes, Nicola Sturgeon's resignation left us with one crucial question answered. The question was, if the UK is a voluntary union, then how does one of its nations leave? The answer from the Supreme Court is only with the permission of Conservative England, the decision meaning that the four unions are not in a voluntary union, but an imposed union. And of course, Stephen, in making that point, uh, you are 
making one that um, has fueled independence uh, in Scotland for many years. The sense of, again, this is, though I have to say, the process argument, which is always easier to go back to the Brexiteers. They don't focus on how you solve the protocol issue. They say if we're tougher by threatening to pull out, we'll get something better, which they don't then specify. A part of the process of, uh, or part of the support for independence is, oh, the bloody Westminster blocking it. Yep. But how do you do it is still a somewhat harder question to address. Okay, um, now that's the three big themes. Uh, <laughs> we usually do one for new listeners. I usually reflect on something and then we have a wider conversation with uh, the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. But there's been a kind of dialogue, dialogue between us all uh, today. But now, uh, if it's okay with you, we'll move on to some other questions briefly. Uh, if you're running and want to stop for a second because you've got a point you want to make and don't know the email address, it's steverick14 at iCloud.com. Okay, uh, Dominic Lee uh, recently became a Patreon member. I became a dad for the first time earlier this week and have the podcast to listen to at 2 a.m. Right, well, uh, what? That's, that's, uh, I hope, stay alert, Dominic. Lot to take in. I had a question, and congratulations, uh, by the way, on being a dad and becoming a Patreon member, both profound, life-changing events. Uh, Dominic says, I had a question. Some recent news stories have shown austerity hitting the armed forces. Trident repair job done on the cheap, issues regarding water safety on board another naval vessel. Do you think this will hit relations between forces and the government? Uh, ben Wallace signalling discontent with the Treasury over future funding too could be a perfect storm. I think it's an interesting question because, again, one of the orthodoxies and cliches at Westminster is Conservatives tough on defence, Labour, although the last Labour government went into several wars, soft on defence and so on. Um, and, uh, of course, it's one of the reasons why you see Kissama draped in a Union Jack wherever he goes. You know, patriotism is associated with being tough on defence and so on. And yet, actually, the Conservatives and defence budgets can be... All, pretty strict. The invasion of the Falklands in the early 80s happened because the Argentinian junta at the time, this kind of right-wing dictatorship, uh, noticed um, defence cuts being imposed in that sort of early monetarist Thatcherism, including around the, the area protecting the Falklands, and in they went. And so it is, it is ongoing. But however, uh, compared to some of the other public services, you will note that the defence budget is doing relatively better than some of the other other ones. But it's, it's an interesting point, Dominic. Venetia Kane response that uh, we had an interesting email last week from a listener who um, suggested that parliamentary candidates needed some form of training to, um, you know, prepare for some of the demands of being an MP, e.g. being a minister, etc. Anyway, Venetia Kane writes, one of your correspondents suggested that to improve the quality of candidates for Parliament, they should all have to go through some form of training, or was it test before being allowed to stand? That, of course, is totally unrealistic and would only reduce the number and breadth of candidates even further. Uh, but one thing I have believed for a long while, having seen how, for myself, how little much of central government actually respects local government and now appreciate it much more through local insights, I do think that every successful parliamentary candidate should spend at least a month uh, in various posts in local government to become informed on how it works. Yeah, I think that's a good idea, actually. Um, and, sh you know, when you think about localism being so fashionable in theory, and then comes up against considerable and in some cases valid constraints, knowing how local government works uh, would be would be a useful qualification. Mind you, so many local councillors are being uh, selected as candidates these days. I mean, a lot of them will come in with those uh, qualifications. Thank you, Venetia. Sean Coldstone. I, I really enjoyed the interview with Lord Butler. Oh, thank you, Sean. Uh, it was interesting to hear him speak about some of the constraints of the role 
Cabinet Secretary. And it got me thinking, partly on the back of your podcast earlier this week, about whether political journalists experience similar constraints, perhaps as a result of the publications they work for. You will recall Andrew Marr saying that he was leaving the BBC to get his voice back. And I wondered about the extent to which you feel able to express your views through the various media outlets. Um, Sean adds, oh yeah, thank you. The calm and reasoned analysis you present is a kind of therapy in these chaotic times where many people feel exasperated with the sense that the country is not working properly. Well, Sean, as I've said before, I'm exasperated. This calm tone is an act, Sean. I'm, I'm as cross as anyone about the way things are going here and despairing. Um, but I think it's boring, that kind of the angry, oh, nothing's working, mate, oh, bloody hell, welcome again, thank you for tuning in, nothing's bloody working this week either, oh, I'm bloody furious. You know, that kind of polemical column is very popular with editors until it's so easy to write. But, yeah, journalists are constrained, very constrained. You know, there, there were sort of political journalists who work for the Daily Mail who won't be able to express the views as they uh, see it um, and so on. And and in the BBC, I've talked about it a bit and I did when I did that uh, podcast on Richard Sharp and impartiality and various crises whirling around the BBC at the moment. That was a couple of weeks ago if you want to listen to it. Impartiality is both easy and subjective and, you know, what people consider to be impartial can be subjective. Um, and so the BBC is deeply constrained and they try and break through it by being at times, you know, programs like Question Time, trying to create a row and a furore and put Farage on or another right-wing columnist on to shake it up and stir it up. And that's how they try and address, try to be exciting while being impartial. But Andrew Mari, I, tell you, I, I know him quite well. He looks um, 20 years younger since getting his voice back uh, because he was constrained. It's the irony. The BBC gives you fame, gives you huge TV audiences, but you can't be yourself. It's a it's a compromise. Uh uh, so just a couple, Alex from London. While it's true that the new, this is about giving power back, you know, the Lisa Nandy interview and other, and the uh, interview I did with Andy Burnham. Uh, while it's true that the new forms of mayor didn't have referendums, not only did London have a referendum, but it also had a detailed consultation on the form of the mayor and electoral system. Despite this, the current Conservative MPs voted to change the electoral system for mayors. Yeah, that's that's a big reform, one of several reforms uh, that we need to look at uh, in our cooperative to first pass the post. It's possible that when this next wave of mayoral elections take place alongside voter ID, that people will ask seriously what's happened to their local democracies. Yep, I think that is true. Uh, that was done very uh, on the sly, kind of a, not many people noticed almost um, changing the voting system for mayors. Paul Cooper, he's, Paul Cooper has got ideas about how you get economic growth or how you don't. Uh, he's now focusing on uh, Ukraine. Given that Russia is actively causing energy degradation in Ukraine and that Putin is blamed for price increases in the UK and a byproduct is higher consumer prices and large profit increases for in energy companies, why not square the circle? Forget about a windfall tax and tax VAT modifications. Just change UAK, UK law to pay for all Ukraine energy support from excess energy company profits, stop increasing the energy price cap to customers and sell the idea that you only made the excess profits from war and it's your duty as much as the governments or citizens to help rebuild Ukraine energy infrastructure. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, the, the problem is that, um, you know, that there's already been quite awareness about um, how far you go for the profits for the windfall tax on domestic users. Uh, but it's a good idea. I mean, these vast profits being made from the energy crisis uh, arisen from the Ukraine war. So sort of earmarking where those go is quite a good idea, Paul. Uh, Jeff Strange, a word of caution from uh, Jeff. He says that even with the departure of Nicola Sturgeon, Scotland will be a hard crack to not hard nut to crack for Labour in terms of winning seats. Um, yeah, it's going to be very interesting. We're going to learn a lot about what matters more, leadership or the waves whirling underneath the leadership propelling in a particular direction in the coming weeks.
Uh, also, Labour needs to make direct changes from Tory seats to Labour. Boundary changes come in. Uh, voter ID, again, uh, is more than likely here to be a problem. Uh, uh, Keir Starmer will need approval ratings that outstrip Tony Blair's in 1997. Um, but in terms of personal ratings, he's lucky to get level pick-pecking with Rishi Sunak. So, uh, yeah, I think Jeff is predicting a hung parliament. He also adds, it all ends with Lee Rowley at number 10. What's happened? We haven't heard much about our man Lee Rowley. Having highlighted his rise uh, from nowhere or predicted it amongst our cooperative, uh, where is he now? Oh, finally, Matthew Ryder writes some very nice things about the interview with uh, Lord Butler, the Cabinet Secretary. Uh, I include it to read out, Matthew, but is it, I won't. It, it looks as if I'm kind of, what is it, being self-aggrandizing? But anyway, thank you very much. I did pick it out to read out. But um, uh, I think we better stop. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Um, well, that's that's about it. Uh, I hope you've joined Helen in baking your bread while you've been listening or drinking whiskey or running up Arthur's seat or running along a river somewhere in England with these open headphones or cycling or whatever. But we've got we've crammed through a lot. I know you will disagree with some of it, but that means you'll agree with something else because we've had a great nuanced dialogue, trying to make sense of it all. That's another of our favourite words for new listeners, nuance. Anyway, thank you uh, so much. Do, if you like it, do leave a rating because that gets, apparently gets it up the charts. We're all obsessed with the charts. It's like being, you know, a band, a rock and roll band. Oh yeah, and this is Rock and Roll Politics. Thanks so much for this. It'll be a great interview later this week. Uh, so do subscribe and make sure you get that and see you again then. Take care. Bye.